Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and the reviews for Awesome Movie are in. And the main criticism, too Jewish. <laughs> yeah, we're we're screwed if we uh, accidentally travel back in time with this podcast to uh, the era of the Nazis, because uh, yeah, we're uh, we're out of luck there. But hey, uh, I just want to put this out there. Just I'm gonna I'm gonna take a stance right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I don't like Nazis, Josh. Okay, all right. Fair. Well, I think this will Fair. come up again, perhaps later. <laughs> you know, or throughout the podcast, even. I I hate them. Okay. Well, I just I don't I don't want anything to do with that. I want them to go away forever is what I want. I'm with mm-hmm. you on that, but we're going to have to talk about them a bit here in this episode because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we have been talking about the films of 1980 and this is our foreign film episode and we are going to be discussing Francois Truffaut's film The Last Metro, which is set during this uh the Nazi era in 1942 during the occupation of France and concerns the members of a theater, well, not a theater company, but the people who work at a theater attempting to put on a play under the regime of the Nazis in Paris in 1942. Yes, uh, Josh, as you know, I refer to it as Le Dinier Metro because I'm a because French you can't, can't because you speak French very poorly is why you Daniel Metro the Daniel Metro <laughs> that's what I said close the enough theater, uh, Montmartre right Montmartre, Montmartre. yeah yeah uh, sure let's let's stop that because we're just gonna really brutally ruin this lovely language <laughs> so. but right off the bat before you get to the reviews here Josh one interesting thing is like you said it's when. Uh, the Nazis occupied France, but they were not, I mean, they were still living and able to live with, uh, you know, without constant warfare. So it's an interesting time setting because you see, you know, these, you know, awful human beings uh, taking over a country, but not in a way where, you know, it's not three years from now or two years from, you know, it's, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's 1942 is different than 1944. Yeah. um, And I I think that's part of what's interesting about this is that there's this weird dichotomy between people just kind of going about their daily lives. And we learn at the beginning that there's actually this huge demand for theater and for cinema because people are going into these buildings to uh, use the you know, the climate control, um, the air conditioning and the heating, because there's uh, there isn't any of that in their homes. Um, But even as people go about their daily lives, they're still living under the constant threat of something worse happening. We see that the Nazis are everywhere. They're out and about anywhere that you go. And if you make one wrong move, it's possible that uh, there could be severe consequences. And, and of course, we see that because the, the head of this theater company, Lucas Steiner, who is a German Jew living in France, is hiding in the cellar of the theater itself because he is afraid of being sent off to a concentration camp. So that's a very, very serious thing, even though sometimes in the movie, the character seems to not take it as seriously as it deserves which is a frustrating thing for his wife 
uh, played by Catherine Deneuve. But there is this this weird you know, contrast between those two things. Yeah, I actually think, um, and I put it in my letterbox review, go for Jason, that that was one of the most fascinating elements of this is that you are dealing with this incredible crisis that we know is going to get worse. And you're living in a country that's been invaded and overtaken. Um, but at the same time, you do have these uh, everyday conversations of, you know, what's right for the play, who's in a romance with whom it was this mix of, you know, the everyday with this like um, earth world shattering kind of overtone. And I thought that really worked well in this film. Yeah, I like that. And it's interesting. We'll get in a moment to the reviews where some critics seem to find that to be a weakness of the film. But I I disagree. I'm with you, Jason. I think that what is fascinating about this story is the way that life continues no matter what. People are still are still people and they still have to express themselves artistically and they still have romantic longings and they still have little petty disagreements and everything that human beings express and have in their lives continues on even under this horrible threat of, uh, of occupation from the Nazis. So I'm with you on that. And this movie was a big success. It's basically Truffaut's kind of last hurrah. It was not his final film, but his final big successful film. Um, it grossed $23.3 million worldwide, uh, including $3 million in the U.S., which uh, is a pretty impressive number to me for a French film about World War II in 1980. Uh, I couldn't find anything on the budget. But um, I doubt it was a huge budget, so I'm imagining that that's a pretty uh, a pretty big success. Also here in the U.S., it was nominated for the Oscar and the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film, although it did not win either of those. In France, it was the movie of the year, nominated for 12 César Awards, which is their top film award, and it won 10 of those awards, including Best Film. Uh, Best Director for Francois Truffaut, Best Actor for Gérard Depardieu, Best Actress for Catherine Deneuve, Best Cinematography, Editing, Production Design, Sound, Writing, just swept those awards, really. The only two it didn't win were the Supporting Acting Awards for Heinz Bennett, who plays Lucas Steiner, the uh, Jewish playwright who has to hide away, and Andrea Ferriol, who plays the production designer who is a lesbian. Arlette. Yes, Josh. Uh, the the foreign film at the Oscars, the winner was Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears, and at the Golden Globes was Tess. I've never seen either of those. Have you? No, I have not. And Tess is a is a film in English, but I guess the Golden Globes decided that British films were foreign films. So <laughs> what's so distant? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Josh, one other fun fact: uh, the only other film to win ten César awards was Cyrano de Bergerac, starring. Gérard Depardieu. Yes. That's, uh, yeah, that is interesting. And it's, it's, it's interesting, too, that this was kind of, in a way, a comeback for Truffaut. Not that he was necessarily struggling. I mean, he was a major world filmmaker. But in terms of having this big, mainstream, um, kind of crowd-pleasing hit, it, it had been a while. The one other background thing that I thought was kind of fascinating is that Heinz Bennett, the German actor who plays Lucas Steiner, is playing this uh, Jew who's hiding from the Nazis. And in real life in World War II, he served in the Luftwaffe. So, ay, ay, ay. Yeah. <laughs> that's a real, that's something uh, 
I'm having difficulty wrapping my mind around. You know? so. <laughs> I mean, presumably he was one of many Germans who, you know, they are conscripted. You're drafted. You have no choice but to serve in the military. And hopefully he did not uh, support the Nazi cause. I mean, I have to imagine that by 1980, people would have had to accept that he was not a Nazi in order for him to have a successful career. But uh, I don't know all the details. It's one of those things that's just listed on Wikipedia and with no further follow up. So maybe there's more to that story. I'm not sure. Come on, stupid. Be a smarty. Go and join the Nazi party. All right. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that the producers was going to come up here. (laughs) Referencing (laughs) one of our former Boston movie year episodes. Yes, indeed. So critics were mostly into this, although slightly less into it than I kind of expected, given how well it did uh, awards wise. It got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert, but they were both kind of mixed on it. And and they both felt the way that I was just kind of describing to you, Jason, where they liked the story, the kind of personal story of the theater company, but they felt like the context of the occupation by the Nazis wasn't taken seriously enough. And that was their real main criticism. And, and I just felt like they're completely off base because what makes the story interesting is not that it's not taken seriously, but that there's still a whole world going on while this is happening. And you have to live your life and you have to continue appreciating art and expressing yourself and all that, even when you're under occupation. But both of them felt like Truffaut had been sort of glib about the Nazi occupation. No, I agree with you. I mean, that's that those two halves made it a whole for me. Also, as you mentioned, the Steiner character stays in a underground, you know, room for 800 days and they're always plotting his escape. So like, how much more seriously do you want them to take this thing? Right, right. I don't know if they wanted more more like archival footage of concentration camps or gun battles or I, I don't know what they would want. But it wasn't uh, again, it was not an uncommon criticism. So uh, in his written review, Roger Ebert said, most of the movie's events take place within the walls of the theater. This is a backstage film, not a war film. There are moments of great danger, somewhat marred by the fact that Truffaut does not resolve them realistically. And there is an unforgivably sentimental ending that ties up everything without solving anything. The problem, I think, is that Truffaut sees the Nazi presence in Paris simply as a plot device to create tension within his theatrical troupe. It is ever so much more dramatic if the show must go on despite raids, political directives, and an electricity blackout that requires the stagehands to power a generator by bicycle power. It's all too cute. Nobody seems to really understand that there's a war on out there. And yet, within the unfortunate limitations that Truffaut sets for himself, he does deliver an entertaining movie. So he's almost like reluctant to praise this movie, which I feel like he's off base on that. Now, Gene... No, that, uh, that's a yeah. terrible impression. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Where did that even go to? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pete, uh, who is the center square back in Hollywood Squares? <laughs> Paul, Peter, Paul, Lynn. Paul Lynn. Yeah, now Gene. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I, just, I just disagree. I think, I don't know, man. You know, like he did something different. We've seen great movies and not so great movies where it's all about the war and the occupation and everything. And I thought this was... Like like we've already said, like, you know, the day to day carries this in this extraordinary and awful circumstance. And it all worked for me. Yeah. I mean, and the, the, the implication that Truffaut somehow doesn't like 
understand the implications. Like Truffaut literally lived right. through this when right. he was a child. Which Ebert, you know, was in uh, in in Illinois having his whimsical, you know, girl chasing years at right. the time. Probably. Right, right, exactly. And and Truffaut too, I'm sure, was having whimsical girl chasing years while living with an occupation. And that's kind of the point here. So I, yeah, Ebert off base. Um, way on the other side, Vincent Canby in the New York Times thought this was an amazingly wonderful movie. He said, Francois Truffaut's The Last Metro is a dazzlingly subversive work. The film has the form of a more or less conventional melodrama about a small Parisian theater company during the Nazi occupation. Though the film's methods are so systematically unconventional that it becomes a gently comic, romantic meditation on love, loyalty, heroism, and history. Not since Ernst Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be has there been such a triumphantly unorthodox use of grim material that usually prompts movies of pious, prefabricated responses. So Camby is really with us, uh, I think, on what we're saying about this film, that it, it, it's it, what's great about this movie is that it doesn't do the grim, serious thing that we might expect about from a movie about the Nazi occupation. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I pitched this idea. This is totally different, but in a similar vein where I wanted to do, you know, we've seen disaster movies and stuff like that. And I thought, like, you know, could we do a movie where uh, like a not a buddy comedy, but maybe like an ensemble comedy where people have to escape a hurricane, you know, and um, this was right around the time hurricanes were hitting uh, like Houston and stuff like that. And uh, some people thought it was interesting and some people thought it was a horrible idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think any of that kind of stuff is reasonable and legitimate because as as we keep saying, like no matter what terrible things are happening around people, life does go on. You know, at a certain point, it, it, even the most horrible danger becomes kind of background noise and you continue to have to live your life and to have relationships with other people and to try to find moments of happiness and joy. Right. So, yeah. And you I, want people to have their happiness and to have their entertainment and to not have to focus on the atrocities all around them all the time. Right. Not all the time. But I also I also don't think that this movie somehow pretends that those atrocities don't exist or forgets that the Nazis are dangerous because it, 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 that's clearly always there in the background. Have you seen To Be or Not To Be? I have not, actually. So I, that, I can't. That was my question. Oh, mm. yeah. Uh, but I would I would like to. I like uh, I like Lubitsch. So have you seen it? Nope. OK, <laughs> well, we can't we can't compare it. But Vincent can be. Loves it and obviously compares this favorably. And then so back on the negative, the very negative uh, end of things, Gary Arnold in the Washington Post takes Ebert's criticisms, I think, even further. He says, a gallery of pleasant non-entities, the Steiner troupe is nevertheless meant to evoke patriotic satisfaction, symbolizing the theatrical wing of a spirit of resistance that sustained and ennobled a whole population during the ordeal of the occupation. Glowing with self-congratulation, the characters are given a curtain call that resembles the finale of Star Wars. The only significant difference, of course, is that Truffaut's characters have done nothing to justify smug, heroic rapture. This is a difficult bummer to shrug off. The mind behind the last Metro seems cheerfully ignorant. You find yourself wondering what it was in Truffaut that ever appealed to you. It seemed to be something genuine, and now it seems lost. 
And he goes on and on and on in this review uh, and, and, you know, makes it sound like Truffaut has somehow, you know, just ruined his own artistic legacy by making this movie, which I think is really way too far. I mean, in general, he seems to be a critic that I am on the other side of the spectrum from, you know, (laughs) but like this whole idea, like they did nothing, like in a way, like screw you, buddy, you know, even if all they did was perform plays and bring entertainment to people throughout a difficult situation and then continue to do their job well, isn't that enough? Right. And I think the point of the movie is that that is enough, even though we do get into uh, Gerard Depardieu's character, Bernard, is working with the resistance and does way more than just put on a play. Um, But yes, the point I think here is that there's value in art and in giving people escape and in making sure that that still goes on. So and 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 again here to 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 call Truffaut uh, ignorant somehow when he literally lived through this these events himself is 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 almost as offensive as he makes the movie sound. America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, anything else you want to say about the uh, background here, Jason? Yeah, I wanted to say one thing, Josh. Um, you know, we talked about it uh, with uh, Blow Up, how when you have like one amazing set all the ways you're able to utilize this. And I thought the way he used the theater space was incredible. I love that uh, and the environment. And uh, when researching it, that was an abandoned chocolate factory that they turned into the theater. And that was pretty cool. Yeah, it is cool. And I think they do find a lot of interesting ways to use that space. And the space can change too, because of course, uh, over the course of the movie, they're putting on the play and they design the set. So pieces of the set start going up and it makes the space into a different physical environment over the course of the movie and different things can happen there. So that is, that is something impressive as well. So the title, I mean, obviously we, we read what we, you know, read and uh, what we learned was that the, you know, we know that the people had to catch the last Metro home because there was a curfew and there was no real like transportation beyond the metros because as you said, there was economic hardships and a fuel shortage. So uh, all of that kind of plays into it. Yeah. And they mention, I mean, in the opening narration of the movie, they describe the the concept behind the title, the idea that everyone has to catch that final train home at the end of the night after their uh, evening out to go to the, the cinema or to go to the theater. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't play into the story quite as much as you would think um, based on it being the title. But that is uh, that is what it's about. Yeah, I don't mind that. No, I don't necessarily either, although I saw some criticism somewhere. I can't remember if it was in one of these reviews that complained about that as well. <laughs> a lot of complaining. <laughs> what a bunch of here. snippy little bitches back in 1980. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't think any of us had uh, had seen this film before. I had not. And I honestly, Truffaut was a major just uh, I'm not. I mean, obviously, I know who he is. And I'm, we've talked about him as an actor in Close Encounters and. He acted in some of his own movies, but I had never seen a Truffaut movie. It was a total just blind spot in my uh, film education, Josh. And, uh, you know, I watched this. I watched The 400 Blows. I'm excited to watch more. Yeah, that's good. Did you like The 400 Blows? I like The 400 Blows, but I like this more. Okay. Wow, that's interesting because, of course, The 400 Blows is Truffaut's first film and still probably his most famous and most acclaimed film and one of the building blocks of the whole French New Wave. Right. And I, I've seen the the 400 Blows. It's been a very long time. I remember liking it a lot when I watched it in a class on French cinema in college, but um, I don't remember a ton about it now. Um, I've seen a few other 
Truffaut films, including Shoot the Piano Player and uh, Fahrenheit 451, which I'm sort of surprised, Jason, that you hadn't seen that. Yeah, because it's I, only English language movie. Yeah, and we watched that in our little film club with Tony Macklin. And uh, it's an interesting, I feel like it's kind of a, a misfire that maybe he doesn't quite get the gist of, of Ray Bradbury's novel that he's adapting there. And maybe Truffaut is not the best director for a sci-fi film. I don't know. Um, and and I, I, was, I was hoping to watch more Truffaut films uh, to prepare for this. And I ended up just watching one, uh, Stolen Kisses, which is the first uh, feature-length sequel to The 400 Blows. And he made a number of movies over the course of like 24 sequels. to it. Yeah. Uh, 25 years or so following that character, Antoine Duanel, as he grows up. So uh, Stolen Kisses features him as a young man uh, with various odd jobs and, and little romances and stuff. And it was it was it was fun. But I don't think it's necessarily Truffaut's best work. But he's got a lot of, you know, a lot of notable films, a lot of. Uh, classic films. And uh, even though I've seen a few, certainly there's more for me to discover too. There's more for all of us to discover, Josh. David Indeed. never seen it either. No, yeah. First time. Also another blind spot for me. 400 Blows is next on my list because uh, I, I do want to get to that soon. Uh, but yeah, it was my first time. Yeah. So we're all Philistines here. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. We don't, we don't have the cultural appreciation that the Nazis did in this film. <laughs> right. Yeah, so true. We're, we're worse than Nazis. <laughs> On that note, we'll be yeah. back. <laughs> Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we are talking about our foreign film pick, Francois Truffaut's The Last Metro. And as we just noted, we're all not as familiar with Francois Truffaut's work as perhaps we should be. But uh, Jason, I know for you, at least coming to this as your first Truffaut film, you really liked this one. Yeah, I really did. And I kind of have gone over the, um, you know, the, the, the large brushes with it over here, so to speak. Um, I thought the setting, he really uses the set incredibly well. I mean, the the guy like like all the uh, French New Wave film directors, uh, really amazing camera work, as we know, and just super smooth um, to go from the shot designs where you're starting in one place and ending up in another, and and just kind of following the story. And like I said, like I just was really interested in like you know the idea of like oh here's the theater uh, gossip of the day, and this person's he wants to hook up with this person, but meanwhile like. You have this, you know, horrible Nazi occupation going on. I, it, it all just clicked for me. I thought it was really good. Yeah, I, I think I didn't quite like it as much as you did, but I did like it. And I think it it built for me over time the appreciation of the film as I was watching it, that I was maybe not as engaged with it early on. But as the story went on and I got to know the characters and and it does build some amount of tension and suspense, even though this isn't, as Ebert says, it's not really a war movie. There is always that threat. And toward the end of the movie, the threat is a lot more imminent and a lot more serious as uh, Daxia, the Nazi sympathizing French theater critic who is also like the head of, of censorship or whatever, and it has the authority to authorize or not authorize whether they can put on a play. He kind of brings the threat closer and closer to this theater as he tries more to assert his authority. He's this kind of petty 
loser who seems to see the occupation as a chance for him to become a big deal that he's never been. Um, So it builds more. And I, I felt like there was the tension really got to me there toward the end, in part because we had gotten to know the characters really well over time and I cared about what what would happen to them. So yeah, I enjoyed it as well. And Josh, uh, some of the inspiration for this, uh, as I'm sure you had read, was Truffaut's uncle and grandfather were part of the French resistance and Daxiat was based on a critic, Alain Liberal. Sure. And then the other piece was uh, the actor Jean Maurice autobiography in which he, I think, uh, punched uh, Lon Libro in the face at one point in time. All right. Nice. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I, I never am super excited when the villain of a piece is a critic, especially he's a <laughs> Nazi critic. But Yeah, well, you are a member of a ramshackle, uh, cuckold organization known as the Las Vegas <laughs> Critic Society. So I understand why you have to defend these uh, horrible, awful Nazi sympathizers. No Nazis in the Las Vegas Film Critics Society. We have that you know about. Clear policy. Oh, come on, man. All the other members of this group now under suspicion by Jason for being Nazis. Um, no, I mean, obviously, like it's not it's not a real criticism for me. And and they make it clear that uh, you know, it's not like every theater critic is a Nazi. It's just this guy who's obviously this very insecure. Uh, power hungry guy who seizes on this possibility. And even when they when they finally do put on the play and they get all their reviews, and of course they focus on his review in part because he has this power to shut them down. And he says all these negative things, which it also seems like is disingenuous because you see him watching the play and he gives them a standing ovation and it seems like he liked it um, and or didn't quite pay attention because he showed up late. But then of course he gives this terrible review where most of his criticisms are that the play is too Jewish. Um, But they do mention that all the other reviews were positive, but of course that's not good enough um, because he has such an amount of influence. I mean, at the same time though, we see ovation after ovation with the audience and it seems like the play, they say it was a hit. So, you know, maybe they put a little too much. uh, I mean, I get what he is he the power he wields but maybe there's a little too much stock put into that right i mean and i I, again i think that's another thing where it's an interesting mix of the danger of the time and just the theater and what what creative artists go through that um yes they're concerned that he works with the nazis and might shut them down or put them in danger but also they want to get good reviews because there are creative people who want to be liked so i did like that that as sort of a, a contrast there I'll tell you one element I really liked, and I thought, man, for 1980, so ahead of the times, like, you know, the the talk about sexuality and like, you know, uh, like we mentioned, Arlette's a lesbian. And there's a point in there where someone is talking to another crew member and they're like, oh, you know, your husband had an affair or something. She's like, no, I had the affair or whatever. And it was like they were really ahead of the times. And, you know, the director, uh, was gay and they just never make a big deal. That's Jean-Loup, you know, about any of this. And it's just, you know, we see so many movies where that is, uh, especially of this time, right? Where like, that's the defining characteristic of, of a, you know, a character on screen. And this is just like, cool, these are people, let's move on, you know? And I thought that was really handled well. Yeah, I agree. And it was interesting. I mean, they, especially with that Jean-Loup character, the director, or who is sort of standing in for Lucas Steiner as like a ghost director 
is is gay and everyone obviously knows it and it's no big deal. And I mean, there's a scene of him at home when he gets a phone call and uh, his boyfriend or whoever, they obviously live together, just answers the phone and he's just there. And I agree with you. I appreciated that that was something that all the characters in this theater world were just like, hey, that's, that's how this is. It, it did seem a little strange to me that as tolerant as those people were, I know that during the Nazi era that being gay was another way to get yourself sent to a concentration camp. So I was a little surprised that he didn't feel more like he was potentially in danger of being rounded up by the Nazis like mm. Lukas Steiner was. So that was never really addressed. And I don't know, maybe maybe that's something that outside of Germany, they weren't as focused on trying to find homosexuals. But that was a little surprising to me. Yeah, that's a fair critique, Josh. I think that's true. Um, you know, in the reviews you read, Two of them like just bashed the ending. And I thought the ending was really powerful. Yeah, I liked the ending. And there's, there's, I mean, to jump way, way ahead, uh, there's sort of a fake out ending where we think that uh, Catherine Deneuve's character, Mrs. Steiner, uh, Marion, who is an actor and also becomes sort of the de facto head of the theater while her husband is hidden away, um, and Gerard Depardieu's character, Bernard, they have this unrequited love. And we think, that they're being reunited sometime after the war. And he is, it looks, he's in the hospital and because he was a member of the resistance that maybe he's been injured in some way and she's declaring her love for him. And then we pull back and we realize this is a play that they're co-starring in uh, after the war and he's fine, thankfully. And we see Lucas Steiner there in the audience who maybe has directed this play or whatever. And the crowd just gives him this wonderful ovation. And I, I don't think like, yeah, it's a little sentimental, but I, I don't think it's 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 too sappy or anything like that. I mean, as Jason, as you said, we see how he spends, you know, 800 days or whatever it is hidden away. It's not like he didn't go through a serious ordeal. And there's a satisfaction to seeing him come out on the other side and have this renewed appreciation from the audience. Yeah. I, I mean, I think he did direct it because they say he wrote it while he was, in, you know, in captivity underneath there in hiding. Um, and that was another cool element is like this guy is in hiding. Right. But he hears the plays going on every night of, you know, and he's taking notes and giving notes back to Marianne. And I thought that was interesting. Josh, you know, we mentioned some other um, Truffaut movies, both uh, Jules and Jim and two English girls deal with the love triangle as well as this one. So I think there's got to be. Uh, so, some I haven't read any Truffaut biographies or anything, but there's got to be something from personal experience coming up from this. Probably so. Yeah, I've seen Jules and Jim, which is great, um, but I've not seen two English girls. And certainly like the Antoine Duanel movies also deal with a lot of uh, romantic travails, obviously something that was on Truffaut's mind a lot. Um, but the romantic story or the love triangle story here is kind of underplayed. I mean, to the point where that was one maybe criticism for me that also comes up in some reviews that eventually uh, as as Bernard is preparing to leave the theater and he's going to go off to join the resistance and fight against the Nazis and Marion declares her love for him. And it's almost like out of nowhere. I feel like we didn't really get it. I mean, she says she had to like hide it away, but she hid it away so well that we never it was never foreshadowed even. So that to me was a little... I could have used a little more understanding of them falling in love. No, I think it was there, you know, when they go to that club and then he leaves, you know, he brings in a woman, he leaves right away. Um, and then she kind of leaves with another man. And plus, Josh, I'm, you know, as a, as an actor who's been in the 
theater, not to this level. Um, but you know, um, you know, this is the type of stuff that happens right on set, right. Or in rehearsals, like you have these, they're called showmances, you know, and everything, it feels so real. And then when it's done, it's like, Oh, that was, that was a thing. And like, they kind of refer to that at the end in the play within, um, you know, that Steiner wrote there. So I think that worked for me. What, what confused me a little was I was, wasn't very clear until he said it, that Gerard Depardieu's character, Bernard, was in the resistance. That was kind of a, a murky element to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also on purpose is that initially we see him being kind of furtive and he's having these mysterious meetings with some other character and they're discussing mis like things that we don't quite know. And I think you're meant at that point to be unsure, or at least this was how I felt. I, was, I thought, well, okay, either he's in the resistance or he's a Nazi spy. And I wasn't sure which one it was. And then there's a point where he's like fixing up a record player that an old record player that they have in the theater. And he says, oh, uh, yeah, Mrs. Steiner told me I could take this for like a party or something like that. And he he hands it off to his mysterious contact. And then a scene or two later, we hear on the radio that there's been a bombing where a, a record player was rigged to go off and it's killed a German commander. And I think at that point you realize Oh, okay. This is what's going on. He's he's helping the resistance, um, sort of surreptitiously. So I think we're meant to be a suspicious of him as a character for a little while until we get that info. So I think that's kind of on purpose. Yeah. Hey, Josh. We um, you know, recently talked about Bob Fosse, and um, it's interesting if you go back and watch Cabaret, and then this kind of uh, with these like nightclub era Nazi occupations before the war went to its height, but. Um, I like the nightclub scene a lot here. And that singer sings like, a, um, I love that song. It's by Mir Vista Shane. That's a song my grandparents used to sing to me. And I, I thought that was uh, the use of music throughout, not just this movie, but also 400 Blows. And I'm guessing throughout most of his movies and just great. Yeah, it is. And that song, I mean, I guess that's not a Nazi song, but it is about like a French and German person kind of falling in love and their miscommunication trying to, to express themselves. I always knew like the Yiddish version of it. Oh, okay. So, oh, yeah. so maybe it's a Jewish song. I don't know. Yeah. Or I know the, the, I'm, I, I should cry. I know the English words, but I think my grandparents knew it from that, from the Yiddish version. Okay. I don't know because my yeah. impression, and maybe this is from having seen Cabaret, was that the nightclub was sort of a Nazi playground in a way, you know? And and even at one point when when Marion says we're all going to the nightclubs, um, I think it's it's Lucas who says he's heard on the BBC that like, you know, people will be judged after the war for cavorting with Nazis in these nightclubs. And so right. that's very much what's going on in Cabaret. So that was why I think I saw the song as some sort of expression of like French and Nazi, you know, friendship or whatever, and the way the singer sings it in French and then sings a bit in German. But maybe I, I misunderstood that. Dave, you want to jump in? <laughs> mm. Dave, the expert on uh, Nazi era nightclubs? Yeah, some, some of my favorite stuff for sure. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I, I was just going to go back to the thing about the romance. I you know, I, I watched this movie. I had to uh, pause it at one point for whatever reason and uh, come back to it the next day uh, to finish it. And I was like, at that point, I was like, I don't really know where this is going. So I looked up a, a just, you know, just a, the plot synopsis, you know, and I was like, wait a minute, there's a romance here. Like <laughs> I, I just, it was so underplayed to the point where I was just like, I didn't even know that that was a thing that was going to be happening here. 
Yeah, it is underplayed. I I, I think I, I fall somewhere in the middle of of you two. Like by the, by the time it was revealed, I was like, okay, but I it felt a bit too underplayed to me leading up to that. So by mere bist of Shane, I just Wikipedia it. It was right. a Yiddish song, it was Yiddish original. Then there was an English version, and it became a global smash. And then, like Josh, like you said, there was a Nazi version of this too, which is oh. strange because it was a Yiddish song, of, you know, at first, right. And, then also hmm. the uh, Soviet Union, uh, you know, a Russian version. So it's uh, it, this um, the song has had a life. Yeah. So oh, yeah. it's like the Nazis have kind of appropriated this piece of, of Jewish culture and turned it into something to celebrate them, which in, in itself is interesting and, and goes with the themes of the movie, because, of course, the theater world is considered so Jewish. And, you know, the right. Nazis want to appropriate that as well. Right. Because they are cultural lovers. Right. Right. Mm. Yes, that's what we're told at one point that the Nazis, I think Doxia says how the, the Nazis love culture, but only, you know, the kind of culture that they're going to approve of. It's not really yeah. culture. It's propaganda. You stink, you Nazis. <laughs> one thing I also I liked and I found amusing about this, and maybe this isn't on purpose, but the play that they put on, which is said to be, I think, uh, like a Norwegian play that Lukas Steiner has translated into French is terrible. Like and we get the snippets of it and it's this like ridiculous melodrama and there's like uh, hidden uh, murders and the love story. And I just thought it was kind of funny that every moment that we see parts of the play, you're like, this is absurd, this play. But I don't know, maybe we're not meant to find it as quite as ridiculous. I think I think one review did mention something like that. And compared it to the movie that the characters are making in Day for Night, which is one of Truffaut's most famous films that I don't think any of us have seen, but that I think in there, the, the fake movie that they're making also right. seems like it's terrible. Day for Night won uh, Best Foreign Picture, and Truffaut was working on kind of a uh, trilogy of entertainment movies with that as the film movie, this as the theater movie, and then he was working on one as a uh, music Paul movie, but uh, he wasn't able to make that because he had to commit to more commercial stuff. And then he died before he had the chance to do that. So, yeah. Um, so that was called the, uh, ah, and I get to do my French again. Oh, no. Jean Magique, the magical agency. All right. Mm. So. Um, I, a couple other like set pieces I wanted to mention in this film. Like I was saying, I felt like the, the tension and the suspense kind of built. And there's, there's a moment where Bernard Girard Depardieu's character is going to meet his contact in a church and his contact kind of waves him off and then is arrested by the Gestapo. And that I thought was really done well, all with like no dialogue. And he goes into this church and there's a children's choir singing some sort of, it sounds like maybe a patriotic song, but maybe also like a song that Nazis have made them sing. Forced them to sing. Yeah. And, and that's the whole backdrop as, as Bernard kind of, fidgets there in the church and is wondering where his contact is. And it's, it's all, it's all staged really, really well, I, I thought, and gets across exactly what's going on without the characters ever speaking. So I liked that a lot. Uh, one thing that was mentioned in one of the reviews that I really liked was all the problems that the theater ran into that Raymond had to solve the kind of stage manager where, you know, they're using bicycles to power it or using kind of uh, floodlights to light the stage. I thought all that worked well as well. Yeah, I mean, and it, it, it again, it shows this dedication that even under these circumstances, they're doing everything they can to keep things going. And they mentioned, you know, there's all these blackouts and other theater companies have to close, but because they come up with this 
system where they use automobile headlights that they can power by the bicycles that they can keep it going, keep the lights on so that they can have their show. So all of that shows that ingenuity. Um, and within the theater, toward the end, when the Gestapo show up and they want to investigate the cellar where uh, where Lucas Steiner is hidden, and they're putting on the play. And during the play, they have to kind of maneuver themselves. They have to keep acting, but also uh, Marion and Bernard talking to each other to make sure that they can, uh, you know, not let Lucas be discovered. And I thought that was was really suspenseful and uses something, Jason, that you're mentioning that the space there, the theater itself, and the different set elements um, as they're kind of moving around or they're uh, Raymond, the the stage manager, is making sure that the Nazis are only you know in certain places so that they don't discover what's going on. I thought that was really effective too. Yeah, I mean, uh, you and I like this. Dave did not. Should we rate this thing, Josh? Yeah, I don't Out know. Should of, we rate, uh, rate five record bombs? Five record bombs. Let's do it. <laughs> I gave it four. I really like this. And, you know, I'm glad in a way, I'm glad this was the first Truffaut movie I saw because, you know, look, obviously I was going to get to him at some point, but this really um, made me excited and I'm excited to watch more. Yeah, I, I, too, I mean, have seen a few more than you have, but had at least a few on my list that I was going to try to see before that we talked about that I didn't get to. And I, I definitely want to, including Day for Night, which is probably the most famous Truffaut I haven't seen. So I'm going to give this a three and a half record bombs. I didn't like it quite as much as you did, but I did enjoy it. And like I said, I kind of enjoyed it more as it went along to the point where by the end it was like, oh, that was really good. So uh, Dave, however, uh, did not appreciate the genius of French cinema. Yeah, yeah, apparently not. And and I just want to say, like, I, I really like the performances here. And there are things about the movie that I did enjoy. But while rating it, I was like, is, is this even a three star for me personally? No, not really. So I'm going two and a half record bombs. All right. Well, <sighs> Dave, you hate Jews. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> maybe if you see some other Truffaut films, Dave, you'll appreciate them more. I think I will probably. Yeah. By right. the way, Dave is Jewish in case you don't know. <laughs> yes. Uh, we'll come yeah. back they, in a they, moment. They, they'd catch me very quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll have to hide Dave in a cellar. Uh-huh. All right. We'll come we back. we have to hide a- all of us in a cellar, Josh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably so. I'm going to let's. Okay. We'll just. We'll come we'll back, be back. We'll be back after this and talk about the legacy of the last Metro. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we are talking about Francois Truffaut's film, The Last Metro. And legacy-wise, we've we've talked a bit about Truffaut's career. This was toward the end of his career. This is the uh, third to last movie he made. Um, as I was saying earlier, basically the last major hit in terms of critical acclaim and commercial success. He made two more movies after this, which I'm not familiar with at all, uh, The Woman Next Door and Confidentially Yours. And as Jason was saying earlier, also, he had a lot of different projects that he was planning or hoping to get to, but he died pretty young at age 52 in 1984, so he was not able to do that. And this is kind of stands as as one of the last bits of his legacy, but but a strong way to uh, sort of go out on. 
Yeah, and Josh, we obviously talked about him as an actor in Close Encounters, but he starred in a good amount of his own movies. Have you ever seen him in any of his own movies? I don't think so. Um, I, I, I'd have to look again at the full list of what he's been in, but uh, I'm pretty sure the stuff that I've seen he's not starring in. And of course, the Antoine Duanel films, starring, starting with The 400 Blows, are very autobiographical, but that's not that's not him. That's uh, Jean-Pierre Léo who is the actor who plays Antoine throughout all of those movies over the course of decades and is in a bunch of other Truffaut films as well. Um, so I haven't seen him act really. And of course, my uh, relationship with Truffaut goes back to the days when we both wrote for the Cahiers du Cinema, Andre <laughs> Bazin's, you know, uh, thought-provoking, <laughs> critic, critical uh, publication of cinema uh, where Truffaut wrote a certain trend in French cinema, which was him taking French cinema to task and like kind of jumpstarting this French new wave, you know? And uh, from there he wrote for arts letters, spectacles. And so he was a very uh, noted uh, journalist and critic before he, he jumped in with the 400 blows there. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those French new wave figures started out as critics in Caillé cinema, including uh, Jean-Luc Godard, who of course we talked about in our 1967 season, when we talked about weekend, his film, um, and they were friends and worked together early on. And it's interesting to me to see the contrast between them because Truffaut, while still making these very autobiographical personal films, really had a far more mainstream career after becoming internationally known in the early days of the French New Wave. And as we talked about with Godard, he took all of that renown of his early career and used it to make a lot of really, really... Uh, challenging, let's say, art films that appeal to an increasingly small niche uh, audience. And he is a big curmudgeon and, and wasn't like, Godard would never want to work with Steven Spielberg or things like that. So they really diverged in their interests as time went on. Right. I had read that uh, Truffaut, the auteur theory came from him. So it's interesting, like you said, because there are both auteurs and um as you know, um, have you ever read Truffaut Hitchcock, the interview book with uh, no, the so, no, I have not. Yeah, so um, you could do that, Josh. I could, yes, read a lot of <laughs> stuff. But right, it seems like Truffaut is more inclined to actually maybe follow in those footsteps of Hitchcock uh, versus Godard going in this increasingly esoteric direction. And of course, Godard is still alive and still making films in his 90s. And, you know, Truffaut, who knows where he would have gone had he lived. He would have directed uh, Captain Marvel 3. Sadly, that's not <laughs> entirely off base. <laughs> so maybe it's better that we didn't find that out. Uh, but no, I did want to say that one of the other things that really appealed to me about this film is that it is so obviously shot on sound stages. And it has this kind of old fashioned, like it looks in a lot of ways like a film from the 1940s. Yeah. I mean, there's there's more color, obviously. The colors are beautiful in this film and really pop. And, you know, some of the mature subject matter, especially about sexuality. But in a lot of ways, it feels like a movie that could have been made in the time that it takes place. Yeah, I love the look of this movie. Yes. So, Josh, we talked about Catherine Deneuve when we did uh, Belle de Jour, uh, one of the most highly acclaimed and highly successful actors ever in French cinema. And yeah. Along with that, Gerard Depardieu is the number two grossing actor in French cinema of all time. And again, tons of awards. And, you know, we're here to talk about him as an actor. Uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, personal stuff that uh, not not so good. But yeah, uh, but, not, you know, uh... we're talking about him as an actor right now. 
interesting that he's in this movie about uh, resisting uh, authoritarian rule, and uh, he is a good friend of Vladimir Putin in in mm. real life. Oh, I wasn't even going to there. I was going with all the uh, sexual misconduct allegations, all of that stuff. So much going on, and yet he still works steadily. He's incredibly prolific, uh, including credits, you know, up up to very recently, and. Uh, both Deneuve and Depardieu, in addition to being two of the biggest stars in French cinema history, both also big international stars working in lots of English language films. I think I probably ran through these same few Catherine Deneuve performances in more recent films that I like, Dancer in the Dark and uh, Persepolis, a film that we also have talked about in our, uh, I think it was 2007 season, the animated film. And um, just a couple years ago, a film called The Truth from Hirokazu Koreeda, which was his film that he made in France. And she was nominated for an Oscar for Indochine in 1993, which I have not seen. Gerard Depardieu was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Green Card, the Peter Weir movie. That's an interesting. Uh, he was also nominated for an Oscar for Cyrano de Bergerac, which I have seen and is quite good. It was one of his big breakout roles. In the U.S. And, and before that, I think Jean de Florette was like the the one that kind of I mean, I'm sure Last Metro as well was, you, you know, but Jean de Florette was a huge film in the mid 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember I, I feel like Gerard Depardieu was a staple of my high school French class because I remember watching. I'm pretty sure we watched Cyrano de Bergerac. We watched uh, Jean de Florette and uh, The Return of Martin Guerre which is another uh, major like French film that was a big international hit. So I saw a lot of Gerard Depardieu uh, in French class. And uh, in my college class, we watched My Father the Hero. Oh, no! <laughs> Wait, did you, did you really? Did, was that? No, okay. no. It's a ridiculous comedy, you know. That he, <laughs> yeah, so and he's in two. He was in, a, it was a French comedy that was remade in the U.S. And he's in both versions of it. Um, the U.S. version, I think, with Catherine Heigl as yeah, his daughter. When yeah. she was uh, still a T, uh, you know, around the time of Jurassic Park. But he was also in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, Ang Lee's Life of Pi, as we said, a, a very revered and celebrated actor. Uh, yes. And um, yeah, I don't want to say anything beyond maybe, that. Maybe, maybe not a great guy. That's, yeah, we've, we've said that. I mean, yes. it's you know, we, we keep coming back to these subjects where it's like, hey, we have to focus on, you know, what they're doing sure. on screen. And, you know, we're obviously not condoning their off screen. No, no. But it is interesting to me that he doesn't seem to have trouble getting work these days, despite all of that. But he was a big deal. Also, you know, in that in that Siskel and Ebert segment, they mention like, oh, and uh, and a big, you know, new breakout star from France, Gerard Depardieu is in this film. So, you know, he yeah. was he was getting that international claim there. Jean and, Perrault, who played Jean-Luc, wrote uh, Le Cajafa and starred in it both on stage and screen. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Playwright as well. That, of course, adapted into the birdcage in uh in the U.S., um, I didn't look up every actor here. Andrea uh, Ferriol, who plays the uh, the stage or the production designer, who's a lesbian, she is uh, she's still alive. She's still working pretty steadily in France. Never became an international star, but you know, lots of French films and television shows. I think they all are pretty much. They they either all work very consistently or are still working very consistently. Right? Yeah. Not a lot of these actors no longer around, but certainly the ones that are. I, one thing I thought of, you know, Dave, to talk about a puzzle piece, maybe if you mm -hmm. had ever done an episode on Inglorious Bastards, this seems like something sure. that would have been a big influence. I'm sure Tarantino saw this film. I thought of Inglorious Bastards, also Belfast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, that definitely could be. Anything else about the legacy you want to mention here, Jason? 
No, it's uh, it's worth it's worth seeking out this film. I think even Dave would say that. I would definitely. Oh, thanks, Dave. So yeah, mm-hmm. check it out if you have a Criterion Collection. It's also on HBO Max. And uh, yeah, I feel like this is not, even though it was a big success at the time, maybe it's not one of Truffaut's best known films these days. But uh, especially if you've seen the big Truffaut movies, you can give this one a shot as well. So. That is The Last Metro, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. We are on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J. Harris Comedy on all the socials. My website, go for Jason. Listen, guys, it's just not good. As opposed to awesomemovieyear.com, that's fine. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram and Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. My website, joshbellhateseverything.com. Not much better, really, but there's some. I might have written something about Truffaut there one time or another. Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And don't forget about our Produced by David Rosen Patreon with bonus content from Awesome Movie Year, of course as well as advanced episodes of Piecing It Together and stuff from my music career. Yeah, we still have an episode, a bonus episode there on American Pie, clearly mm-hmm. heavily influenced by Truffaut, that film. Definitely. So what's coming up in our next episode, Jason? Josh, it's my pick. And guess What'd you what? pick? Well, Josh, next episode, we will be on a mission from God. We're watching the Blues Brothers. And I've never seen the Blues Brothers, so that is something I'm looking forward to. Tune in next time for the Blues Brothers, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.